Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. podcast this is molly and i'm Kristen. Kristen, lots of my friends are having babies these days mine too and i go and visit the babies and they're cute they're fun mm. kind of not really they can't talk to you and i'm a very verbal person and don't know what to do when something can't talk back to me which i think is one way i know that i am not ready to have a child yeah clearly i think children are little robots sent to destroy us, and that just is a good sign that I'm not ready for motherhood. Whoa, Molly, before we start getting in a lot of hate mail for your anti-baby ways... I'm not anti-baby for other people, just for myself. Yeah. But that doesn't mean in the future I won't change my mind. Yeah, and you know what, Molly? If you hold out long enough in the future, you're going to have some zany ways of making babies. I know. This was, um, I researched all the ways in which people might have children in the future, and it made me feel a lot better about being sort of anti-baby for myself right now. Yeah. Because what, because basically science is going to figure out how women can have and men can have exactly the kind of baby they want exactly when they want it. It's going to be like Burger King, basically. Yeah, wasn't there a woman, I want to say, in Slovenia who in, I think, 2005 uh, gave birth to a child at 66? Mm-hmm. I want to say highly controversial. Right. But I think in the future, in the future, it will be less controversial because there's just going to be so much science. So much science. Well, science and babies really got off to to a great start in uh, in 1978 when Louise Brown, aka the first test tube baby, was born, and she basically she was the first child uh, born via in vitro fertilization. And now, in vitro fertilization keeps moving forward to the point that we have something called Octomom in the culture now, and. Nadia Suleiman? I prefer to call her Octomom. A woman who, I think it recently came out that basically she was storing embryos. She didn't want to pay any more for the storage, so Mm -hmm. she basically just said, well, put them in me and let's see what happens. Um, That's according to the New York Times. I don't want to, I'm not trying to make a judgment on Octomom, but I think that the judgment that our society puts on her shows that the advances that we'll discuss in this article mean that... um, you know, there are a lot of questions to be asked about fertility, about uh, a woman's right to have a child, a man's right to have a child, and how far science should be allowed to be involved in that process. Yeah, it comes down to this little this question that, that often pops up in science and technology of are we playing God with uh, with all of this this fertility technology? And and the first thing I think we should talk about is something called pre implantation genetic diagnosis. And this has been around in some fertility clinics since uh, the 1990s, but it might become a lot more common in the future. And this is also known as embryo screening. And basically, it takes a three-day em- embryo and pulls out one of its cells to test for genetic markers of disease. So basically, you can pre-screen the six-celled embryo to see whether or not it's uh, it has the potential to develop uh, life-threatening diseases down the road. Right. There was a baby born recently that they called the first breast cancer-free baby because they knew that it didn't have the markers, the genetic markers for breast cancer. Now, already you can start to ask questions about um, environmental factors and whether that's ever going to play into this child's life. But I think that it's hard not to argue with uh, parents who want to make sure that 
to the best of their ability that their children will never have to face some awful genetic disease. Mm-hmm. And right now, while it is legal in the U.S., I think we should also note that uh, that this embryo screening is still illegal in the U.K., India, and China. Um, but the thing about pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, while it seems like a good idea, you are pre-screening the child for, uh, for sickness and disease. No one wants their child to, to develop cancer or something terrible like that. But is this the first step towards what is commonly referred to as designer babies? Right, because once you figure out how to check for the genetic diseases, you can start to check for anything that's controlled by genetics. If you want, uh, blonde hair, blue-eyed baby, you can look at the genetic markers for that. You can look at the genetic markers for gender, which is one reason why PGD has been outlawed, as you were mentioning, in the United Kingdom, India, and China, because people think that it's not right that you can walk into a fertility clinic and say, find me an embryo that's going to look like this and behave like this. Well, and also there is a chance of losing genetic diversity, because if everybody starts going in and wanting the same types of perfect little babies, then... uh the diversity is going to fade out over time. And then there's also the issue of something called negative enhancement, which would be if a parent selected for um, a trait such as dwarfism or um, what we might consider more of a uh, of a negative trait, genetic trait. Right. And that's another one of these big ethics questions that people have to grapple with when you think about children of the future is who's going to decide what's a negative enhancement or what's a perfectly reasonable thing to ask for. Because let's say two deaf people who are married walk into a fertility clinic and say that they want a deaf child because they know that uh, being deaf has this sort of cultural legacy. They want the child to be able to communicate within their culture and their social circle. Who's going to be the one that says, you know, deafness isn't something we're going to select? I mean, Mm -hmm. who are we to say it's a handicap? So that's an issue that's going to come up. Um, and there was a survey recently conducted by the New York University School of Medicine, which shows that right now in the United States, people are generally on board with using it to avoid things that, you know, we can pretty much say are, are bad, like retardation, cancer, other mitochondrial diseases. But now 10% of people think that it's acceptable to figure out um, if your baby will have any athletic ability in the future. 13% of people think it's okay to see if you can have the embryo with improved intelligence. And uh, 10% want to make sure they can have, you know, a nice tall child in the future. So maybe short people who are slightly dumb and can't play basketball, they'll, they won't exist in the future. Yeah, I think it's going to be really, I, I wish I could look into a little, uh, look into a, a crystal ball and see, you know, 20 years from now, how far this, you know, quote, designer baby trend will have gone and how the laws are going to change. Because like you said, I mean, Is there, how could you ever legislate against, you know, selecting for certain traits because that, that just seems inherently wrong. Um, but Molly, one other factor with reproductive technology has to do with, uh, with age, with whether or not like women can get pregnant if they have, um, if their, their wombs are up to the task, uh, Mm -hmm. either because of biological problems or because of age limitations with things like a menopause. Um, but there might come a day when children can be born from artificial wombs that are hooked up to something called a placenta machine. Right. And, you know, it sounds very science fiction, but there's a woman named Hun Chin Liu of Cornell University who essentially has grown artificial wombs using human tissue. Yeah, she basically began growing sheets of endometrial tissue. And uh, and then she was able from that to construct a freestanding uterus. 
Uh, and then when she implanted the donated human embryos into, I guess, the placenta machine, they began growing in, in the tissue much like they would have in a woman's womb. But because of uh, ethics laws, the embryos had to be removed before they could come to term. Right. So she turned to mice because no one really seems to care about mice, unfortunately. Um, she put mouse embryos in this artificial womb. And they almost made it to full term, except they were deformed. So I'm not, tr- we're not trying to suggest that any of these technologies are right around the corner, but it's definitely something that ethicists are already grappling with. Um, another thing that has been, uh, scientifically and artificially made, sperm and eggs. Yeah. In 2009, researchers from Newcastle University in England announced that they had created human sperm cells from embryonic tissue. Um, and while the the fake sperm looked like uh, the real deal in terms of looks and actions, scientists think that sperm actually needs a 15-year time in some testes to develop, to become viable to fertilize an egg. Right, and manufactured eggs may also be on the way. Um, also, entire embryos. You know, you want to talk about a hilarious romantic comedy movie. How about an embryo with three parents? Hey, I'm going to sell that screenplay soon, but it's real. Gwyneth Paltrow. (laughs) Let's say there's two parents who both have this genetic marker for uh, mitochondrial disease like cancer. Mm -hmm. What they can do is take uh, the parts from both of them, take out that DNA that would cause a disease like that and put it into an embryo that will basically grow the child's DNA for it or the genetic markers for it. Mm -hmm. So it's like uh, you're outsourcing your mitochondrial production. And, Molly, in the future, I wonder how many times you said the future. Uh, In the future, it might be possible for two men to have a baby together without the help of a surrogate because eggs can be made from male cells. How about that? Right, because they've got both the X and the Y chromosome. Mm -hmm. But... Unfortunately, sperm requires Y chromosomes, so a lesbian couple would still have to rely on the help from male tissue. Right. So the thinking goes that in the future, you could have, let's say, two men who get the DNA all put together to make the the artificial sperm and egg. Mm-hmm. They put it in the artificial womb. Yep. Grows it for nine months. All of a sudden, we got a baby. Yes. Now, no one knows, of course, at this point... What health problems the baby could be at risk for by not coming out the old fashioned way. But it does seem by reading some of this stuff that having a baby, um, just by having sex kind of would be on the way out because you wouldn't be able to do any of that genetic determination. And, you know, you've got to wonder if some people would want to carry a baby when they can put it in the artificial womb. So the question really is, Molly, for this episode is not how we have children, but Will sex become passe in the future? I don't think sex will ever become passe, but sex to have a baby, maybe. But whether this baby technology pans out or not, Molly, the fact of the matter is the family dynamics in in our society really are changing in general because uh, take, for instance, the fact that from 1990 to 2002, the birth rate for women 45 and over, according to the CDC, more than doubled. Right. Like there's been this big trend towards um, uh, older parenting in general, basically people waiting till later in life once they're more financially secure, a little more, you know, emotionally and professionally stable. They're really committed for the long haul, then going about having children instead of doing it early in life. Right. I think that no matter what happens in the future, our vision of what a family looks like is already changing. And there have been a few studies about the effects of having children later in life. Uh, we found two books. One's called Last Chance Children 
which looks at 22 children who were raised by older parents um, and interviewed them when they were adults. And of those adults, only two of the 22 would want to have their own children later in life. And the rest of them basically just complained a lot about how their parents didn't have the energy to play with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's just the whole argument of, well, if you have a child when you are, say, 45, 50 years old, then, you know, if your child is in your teens and you're getting older, is your child going to end up having to basically parent you and take care of you in your in your old age and basically rob those children of their young, carefree adolescent years. But really, is there any adolescent that that likes their parents? Well, yeah, I mean, I did. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think, yeah, well, the point you're trying to make is the teen years are going to be probably a little rocky at some point for any any family, no matter, no matter the age of the parents. Um, but the other book that we mentioned uh, that we found was Children of Parents Over 35, Andrew Alliero, had a much bigger pool, 650 people who, at, who answered uh, questionnaires about what it meant to grow up with older parents. And some of them were bitter about it the way that the other ones were. Some of them just talked about how great it was to have, you know, a parent who wasn't hovering, was was more emotionally mature, could provide that stability. So I don't think that there's any right or wrong way to do it. But I think that one interesting thing we were finding is that we tend to think that men are just these all-powerful beings that can have babies whenever they want. They don't have this biological clock that ticks. And it's right. really women who benefit from these advances in reproductive technology but it's important to note, fellows, that you, too, have a bit of a biological clock. Yeah, sperm have uh, have their own shelf life as well, it seems. And this was from uh, an article that we found in a in the New York, New York Times magazine from earlier this year. And it said that researchers from the University of Queensland found that children born to older fathers have, on average, lower scores on tests of intelligence than those born to younger dads. And that was from a pool of 33,000 American children. And in addition, British and Swedish researchers have also calculated that that the risk of schizophrenia begins to rise for those whose fathers were over 30 when their babies were born. And another Swedish study has also found that the risk of bipolar disorder in children begins to increase uh, when fathers are older than 29 and is highest if they're older than 55. So it's kind of added an interesting dimension to this whole uh, how old is too old, old who have a baby question because a lot of times we immediately think of women. Mm-hmm. But it does appear that, that men now have an impact as well. So it seems that there are always risks is what I'm learning from this, Kristen, is that, um, you know, it doesn't seem like there's any perfect age to have a baby. And I think that will only continue to change in the future. That doesn't mean that ethicists don't want to figure out how to draw the line in the sand, because, mm-hmm. I mean, we are talking about older parents, but it's perfectly conceivable that if there was an artificial womb technology that some 10 year old wouldn't march into a fertility clinic and be like, well, I want a baby too. <laughs> a real know, life doll. Well, I think, I think the, the concern is towards the other end of the spectrum. Uh, like with that, I said Slovenian, it's actually Romanian woman, uh, who had the child by IVF at, uh, at 66. Right. So right now, uh, I think the American Society of Reproductive Medicine would like clinics to turn away people who are past menopause. Mm-hmm. Um, because, they say that if your body can no longer do it, then perhaps you shouldn't be helped along by science. Yeah. But like we were talking at the beginning of the podcast, there's so much science out there. Yeah. And we're living longer. That's right. So how we have children in the future, maybe it'll be placenta machines. Maybe it will be artificial eggs made from male cells. Maybe it will be from rainbows. Maybe we really will have robot children and I won't just think... 
that babies are like robots. You seem a little comforted by that thought, Molly. <laughs> a little bit. That I can understand. That I can wrap my head around. <laughs> well, guys, I you can wanna... program it to do what I want. Well, sorry, I don't mean to call babysits. Yeah, that, that's, you're never babysitting for me, Molly. I think I just decided <laughs> if I ever have a child. Uh, well, you guys, if you have any thoughts about um, children of the future, <laughs> how old is too old to have a baby, and all that good stuff, please send us an email at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And speaking of which, I think we got a little bit of Lister mail, Molly. And this Lister mail comes from the episode we did on what is the difference between marriage and civil union. And this first email I have comes from Virginia. And she says, I have to say it really irritates me when people use the slippery slope argument, i.e. people will want to marry children, horses, cars, etc. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but I think people who use that argument are forgetting one very important thing, the ability to give consent. Can a child consent to marriage? Legally, no. Can a horse consent to marriage? No. Can a car consent to marriage? No. Therefore, it's an entirely ridiculous argument. My personal opinion is that if people, regardless of their sexuality, want to get married, they should all be required to have a civil ceremony, even the religious people, which would grant all the essential rights of marriage as we understand it. Then, if people want to have a religious ceremony in addition to the civil ceremony, then that's their decision. If people decide not to have a religious ceremony on top of their civil ceremony, then they still have all the rights that come with being married. Thanks for putting that information out there. And thank you, Virginia, for writing in. And I would like to read an email from Jillian. She writes, We started the podcast talking about Maine's election and the state decision to repeal same-sex marriage. While this saddens me, I'm a little irritated with the mass media's response to this. Maine's election has been a lead story with many news anchors stating same-sex marriage has been denied by every state in which it was brought to a vote. However, what these networks are neglecting to mention is the passing of Referendum 71 in Washington State. People have been calling it the everything but marriage law. As a Seattle citizen, I was very happy that Ref 71 passed, but dismayed that it has not been receiving any response in the press. It was a pretty close fight, but the voters of Washington State did not beat it down. I feel it is a step in the right direction. Referendum 71 is about more than just same-sex partnership. While it secures rights for same-sex couples, it also provides rights to domestic partners of all types, including senior citizens. Anyway, I feel like Referendum 71 is a great stepping stone to equal rights for all, and perhaps if other states put this kind of legislation on a ballot, citizens would have an easier time accepting domestic partnerships of all stripes. Well, and to wrap things up, I've got an email from Ryan from Chicago. He says, I feel you may have missed some important facts over why the LBGT community does not just settle for civil unions and or domestic partnerships. While many believe these to be equal with regard to right and benefits to marriage, the facts simply do not support that in most states. While getting my BA, I remember hearing one of my professors speak on the difficulties of him and his partner um, in obtaining his status, including psychological evaluations, mountains of paperwork, and weeks slash months of verification, etc. It's also been pretty well researched that marriage, while being a religious institution, still provides many more benefits than even a civil union and in Unfortunately, um, why those rights sometimes fail. I love the podcast and I applaud you for bringing up. I just hope that you will mention some of these things as well, since many people don't realize the inequalities of marriage versus other types of unions and why the LGBT community shouldn't have to settle for separate but equal. Thank you, Ryan. So if you've got an opinion, it's momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also check out our blog. It's called How To Stuff. And as always, if you want to learn about anything we talk about, including children of the future, then head on over to HowStuffWorks.com. 
more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?